0: Good morning. My name is Mike Neglia, and it's my honor and privilege to bring you a message from God's holy word this morning. But first, I have a confession to make, okay? Well, it's not really a confession. It's more like a story in which I don't look very good in. It's kind of embarrassing now that I think about it. Uh, Here goes. Two weeks ago on the way to church, I got lost. I got lost. Well, not actually lost. I mean, there was no time where I didn't know where I was, but I made a wrong turn. But the problem is, the wrong turn I made is I missed my exit on the Northern State. I missed the exit, and of course, like any good neglia, I tried to push the blame off on my wife, Heidi, and that's never a good idea. After almost 20 years of marriage, I've learned that even when it's her fault, it's really my fault. Amen? That was the second mistake I made, and that was worse than missing the exit. So I texted Jean, who was... Um, that I was going to be late that morning and of course he said, it's fine, no problem because I was scheduled to play bass with the worship team and he was leading that week. So back to the fight, I mean back to the disagreement with my lovely wife. I tried to to push the blame on her um, because I said she took too much time getting ready for church in the morning, which you can never say ever. But in reality, she didn't. She was right on time. The time I asked her to be ready, she was ready. But after I blamed her, I began complaining about how far we have to drive to church every Sunday. You see, we live in Hop Hog, way out in Suffolk County, good old exit 58 on the LIE. In order to be on time, in order to drive the almost 30 miles one way to church from our house, we have to leave very early in the morning. So in my anger and blame shifting, I said something like, the church is so far away. If someone like Caleb makes a wrong turn, what, is he gonna be a minute late at most? Because he lives so close to the church. The R knows as well, everybody does. But if I make a wrong turn, I end up being 20 minutes late, because I have to drive so many miles out of my way just to get back on the parkway, blah, 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 blah. Heidi had already tuned me out by this point, as she's probably doing now, because she's heard it all before. And it was worse when we were members of North Shore Baptist in Queens. That trip was about 80 miles round trip. And along with Steve Schultz, I served as an elder there. So with ministry meetings, elders meetings, midweek Bible studies, the Great Commission team meeting, music ministry, Sunday worship, let me just say, the trip seemed longer and longer and longer each week. And this is way before Zoom. I liked it better before Zoom, but it was before Zoom. Now don't get me wrong, grumbling and complaining is wrong in any situation. It's not being content, Brother Gideon. So not just that my pity party I threw for myself, I was wrong straight out, and she was actually right. Now, I'm saying that in front of a cloud of witnesses, so please hold me accountable. But the point of the story is why, whether I did it with a good attitude or not a good attitude, why would we or anyone else drive all that way just to attend church? I mean, I looked on Google Maps when I was preparing my sermon, and every time we come here, we pass about 20 churches at least on the way here. And when we went to church in Queens, it's probably double that amount, right? So why would anybody pass other churches to come to a specific church? Well, one reason is because of this. Now, being members of a church that rightly divides the word of truth, that preaches and teaches the full counsel of God, who holds the Bible up as the sole infallible rule for Christian faith and practice, where the preacher does not preach his opinion, but he exegetes, he he draws out the meaning from the scriptures, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. That's why Heidi and I are members of this church, and hopefully that's why you are too. But is that enough? Is that enough? What about fellowship? What about congregational worship? What about prayer? Well, over 20 years ago, I chose North Shore because it excelled in all these things. I mean, there were plenty of churches. When I became Reformed, there were plenty of churches that I wanted to go to, but they were cold places. You ever hear of the frozen chosen? That's what they were. North Shore provided not only correct doctrine, but opportunities to serve and fellowship and prayer meetings and evangelism and community groups. Then when we were sent out from North Shore to plant Redeeming Grace Fellowship, we continued in that vein. And now, Gateway Church, what can I say to you? So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Now, as you're turning there, as we know, the apostle John, on account of the gospel, was exiled to the small island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Greece. Now, church history teaches that John was the only apostle not martyred for Jesus, but he was simply tortured and shipped to Patmos to perform hard labor in the island's mines. And it is in John's banishment on the island that he received an angelic vision and was given a vision, a revelation from none other than the Lord and Savior himself, Jesus Christ. You get that? You've lost that love and feeling, the righteous brothers, but the. Okay. I was going to sing for my intro. Praise God, you got what I gave and said. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus Christ refers to himself as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, him who loves us, one like the Son of Man, the first and the last, and the living one. And in this vision, the Lord Jesus has seven distinct messages for the seven distinct churches of Asia Minor. These seven churches made sort of a circuit from Patmos, where John was exiled. There was Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So the book of Revelation, as you full know, is a highly symbolic book. And the symbolism begins right at the start. In chapter 1, these seven churches were symbolized by seven golden lampstands that John sees in his vision. And he noticed Jesus walking around these lampstands while holding in his right hand seven stars, which stand for the seven angels or the key pastors of the seven churches in Asia Minor. It tells us that in the text. So ladies and gentlemen, this morning we are going to examine Jesus' message to the first of the seven churches, to the key elder there at the church in Ephesus. Now, as you recall, in the book of Acts, we see Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife, Christian missionaries and tent makers, alongside another famous missionary and tent maker, a guy named Paul. Together, they ministered in Ephesus for about three years. We also see Timothy and Tychicus are also credited as serving there, Timothy being an elder there when receiving Paul's letters, 1 Timothy, one of which we're studying each week with Pastor Caleb. And tradition states John himself may have served as an elder there later in life. We don't know, but that's what tradition teaches. But now at the time of his exile, long after the Apostle Paul's death at the hands of Rome, the Lord Jesus, through John's pen, writes to the Ephesian church. And in his letter, he first commends them. Second, he admonishes them. Next, he commands them. Then he warns them and finally he promises them. So this message and the six that follow it were originally written for given to a particular church at a certain location at a specific point in time. However, this message message should be examined, it should be considered by all Christian churches at all locations at every point in time and it has been for the last 2,000 years. And now it's our turn, Gateway Church. So please, as in Revelation, please turn to chapter 2 and read along silently as I read aloud chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, To him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So in the text, the Lord Jesus' message to the Ephesian church can be divided into five sections or five points. Number one, the positive, verses 2 to 3 and verse 6. Number two, the problem, verse 4. Number three, the prescription, verse 5a. Number four, the peril, verse 5b. And finally, the promise, verse 7. So let us first look at what Jesus was pleased with at the Ephesian church. And as a side note, whenever critiquing someone or giving them bad news, always begin with what's good, if possible. I mean, that's not in my sermon. That's just free advice for you. I mean, it goes a long way when you start saying something good first before you let them have it. So number one, we see the positive, verses 2 and 3 and 6. Let me read that again really quickly. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So point number one, the positive. Jesus knows their works, He knows their hard labor. He knows how busy with ministry they are. He knows their toil. In other words, Jesus knows how hard they drive themselves. The word has the connotation to the point of exhaustion. As Gideon brought up before, they're not home watching Netflix, okay? They're working hard. The Ephesians were not lazy Christians by any stretch of the imagination, they had works. They toiled until their fuel gauge was on empty, and they kept on going. If you consider the city of Ephesus, it was a metropolitan city. Uh, Pliny the Elder called Ephesus the light of Asia. The city was the capital of the Roman province. We recall in Acts 19 that great temple of the goddess Diana or Artemis. We remember the uproar that the apostle Paul caused because of the gospel of Jesus. And the gospel of Jesus means bad business for idol makers, amen? especially for a man named Demetrius the silversmith. This is the society and culture in which the Ephesian church existed, in which it worked and in which it toiled, standing up for the gospel of Jesus. No wonder they worked hard. This was a tough mission field. But in all, they endured patiently, and this showed great spiritual maturity. I mean, patience. How many of us struggle to practice patience? How many of us? This is spiritual maturity on their part. I mean, it's, it, it's one thing to do much for Jesus. It's one thing to do a lot for Jesus. But it's completely something else to wait on him patiently. To wait on him to both bless what you're doing and also to avenge your enemies. Romans 12, 19 says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's a sign of maturity. But notice as well, the Ephesians did not bear with those who are evil. It says they tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. They tested them. They didn't let just any old person in. Praise God, the Ephesian elders seemed to heed Paul's exhortation that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30, where it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and will, from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. And it seems that Timothy followed Paul's direction as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7, to 7, it says, And I urged you that when I was going to Macedonia... desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You see, the Ephesian elders in both places did not tolerate false teaching. That's important, okay? Because the false teaching would have resulted in sinful behavior. And ladies and gentlemen, it most often always does result in sinful behavior. On the contrary, the Ephesians tested the spirits to see if they were from God, just as John wrote in 1 John 4. And thus they protected the flock from wolves. And that leads us to verse 6, to the wolves referred to as the Nicolaitans. Look again at verse 6 in your Bible. Jesus says that they, the Ephesians, hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I, Jesus himself, also hates. Who are the Nicolaitans? I don't know. Nobody knows today. Nobody knows. We can attempt to deduce who they were and what they taught and what they did, but at the end of the day, it can only be guesswork. Okay, so we need to tread lightly here. And that's true for any uh, any scripture that, that we don't really truly understand historically we need to we can look into it god says to look into it we need to tread lightly don't be dogmatic about things that the scripture is not dogmatic about so there are a few possibilities and clues from the text and from church history so in humility we continue one thing we do know is the name nicolaitin means to conquer the people okay the word nikos means to conquer and the word laos means the people so together the words form the name Nicolaos which leads some early church fathers to conclude that the Nicolaitans were followers of Nicholas, who was one of the seven deacons chosen by the apostles in Acts chapter 6. Some hypothesized that this proselyte of Antioch apostatized. He left the true faith and led his own secret sect or cult, and these were his followers. Whether or not this is true, we don't know. I don't want to besmirch his name. We don't know if that's true but some commentators, especially in the early church, believe this might have been the case. But the connection to the name Nicholas leads some to believe that this heresy arising was a sharp separation or distinction between clergy and laity. The word laos is where we get the word laity from, so Nicholas to conquer the, the laity, okay, indicates a domineering leadership, suppressing a lesser people, suppressing the lay people in the church. That's one view. Another view has a little more biblical support to it, and it connects the teaching of the deeds of the Nicolaitans to the teaching of Balaam from the Old Testament. You see, the Nicolaitans, since they weren't tolerated in Ephesus, seemed to find a way into the church of Pergamum. And if you look forward in your Bibles, it'll be on the screen as well. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we read, Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So here the Lord seems to connect the teaching of Balaam with the teaching of the Nicolaitans which is food, sacrifice, idols, sexual immorality, which is usually part of pagan worship, and experiencing sensual pleasures or sin in order to understand it fully. I mean, perhaps this, by this time, there was a sort of pre-gnostic dualism in place, which considered the, only the spiritual realm, realm of any importance and the physical realm counting as nothing. So therefore, what you did with your body didn't really matter, it wasn't a concern, only what you did in your spirit. But again, whether this is true or not, we're speculating here, and I don't want to go any further except to to say that they, the Ephesians, and those at Pergamum, knew what the, the Nicolaitans taught, and the Ephesians hated what they taught, would not allow them in the church, while those in Pergamum, unfortunately, allowed them in. Thus, Jesus commends the Ephesian church. They hated what Jesus hates, and he makes note of that. Now, before we move on to point two, which is the problem, let me read one last time verse three from chapter two, because I think it may inform our understanding of Jesus's coming criticism. If you look in your Bibles, Revelation 3.2 says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You see, the Ephesian church had endured attacks from their pagan neighbors, attacks from false teachers, both in and out of the church, and have not grown weary. They're like the Energizer bunny, they keep going and going and going and going and going. They've worked and toiled, they've toiled and worked to the point of exhaustion, they've withstood evil people and evil doctrine, and notice their motive for doing all of these things. Verse 3, it was for Jesus' sake. Christ himself testifies to that. And remember that because I think it will help us understand our next point. So here we go. We've seen the positive. Now we move on to the problem. Verse 4. In your Bibles, you'll see Revelation 2.4. Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now even though the Lord commended them on their hard work, toil, patient endurance, their resistance of evil nevertheless he says they had abandoned the love they had at first your translation may say they had left their first love so what exactly does that mean well there are two main views on this criticism by the Lord and the truth in this case may lie somewhere in between so here we're going to look at verse 1 really quickly I mean view 1 in view 1 Some believe the text is teaching that the Ephesians left their initial on-fire love for Jesus. Nevertheless, they continued serving. They kept going through the motions. They were on autopilot. You see, outwardly, they were so religious and righteous and they fought hard. But inwardly, their hearts were cold and their lives were passionless. To support this view, the Apostle Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, I can serve Jesus even unto death. They can kill me for Jesus, but if it's not done in love, it's all for nothing. Certainly, Ephesus had been busy doing Working, toiling, serving, teaching, preaching, singing, giving, evangelizing. But if it was done without a sincere desire and passion and love for Christ, it was useless. That is view number one. Their fire had gone out. Their hearts no longer burned for Jesus. And now we come to view number two. And this is the interpretation that I personally lean more toward. View number two is that the Ephesians had abandoned the love they had for one another the love they expressed at the early stages of their church, the early stages of when they set out sojourning together for the sake of the Lord. You see, their brotherly love and sense of Christian community had waned. Yes, they continued to labor together, but the love they had manifested toward one another as the body of Christ had dried up. The sacrificial love that they once practiced for the brethren had ceased being a reality in their gathering. Now, I lean toward that second view, and here's the reason why personally I do. A moment ago, I told you to remember what the Lord commends them for in verse 3. And what was that? Well, they patiently endured. Why? For his name's sake. For Jesus' name's sake. They patiently endured for Jesus' sake. And that, if that's the motive behind their behavior, that Christ's name is proclaimed and his person being worshipped and honored and glorified, then I think it rather unlikely that it indicates a lack of love and passion for Christ. I mean, how do you value him, really value him more than anything in the world, while well, at the same time have your heart not burn for him? Again, the reason why we know their motive is because Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men, tells us what it is i mean it's obvious we can be able to fool each other right we can do things that look righteous and look loving but inside we have bad motives we can do that we can get away with that we can fool each other but not jesus christ he knows our motives so if he through john writes down their motive is for him Not personal gain, riches, fame, or fortune, but for the Lord. I really can't reconcile the two. Okay, I can't. But in light of that, let me expound a little bit more on view number two. But don't worry, if you're siding with the first interpretation, my app points will will entertain that as well. So you'll get everything today. The Ephesian church may have been at the time of the writing of the letter, John's letter, failing to love each other in the ways commanded by Christ and the ways they had in the past. Now it's very possible that the many years of fighting heresy and identifying false brethren inside the church may have given rise to a suspicious congregation. Let me explain. Perhaps a guilty unto proven innocent attitude arose in the church. Maybe a trust no one but Christ attitude had developed in the church. A critical eye toward each other waiting for someone to fall may have arisen. It might have been necessary when identifying the false apostles and identifying the Nicolaitans, but this may have resulted in a hardening heart toward one another. But this is not the way we should view our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 7 to 10 reads, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name as you still do. You see, the writer of Hebrews says he's convinced of better things concerning his brothers and sisters. Those that endure, those that labor, those who stick with it, he's convinced of better things. He's not armed and ready to pounce as soon as they take a wrong step. On the contrary, it was our before sermon reading today, the Lord said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Maybe in Ephesus' case, the, Lord, uh, the love they were lacking was not for their brothers, but maybe it was for their neighbors. I mean, perhaps the unbelieving, pagan, idolatrous neighbors. That's where the lack of love lies, maybe. Maybe. I mean, it is time, at times, extremely difficult to care for and minister someone that hates the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, amen? But the Lord Jesus calls us to love and care for our neighbors as well. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. Again, maybe years of battle had scarred the Ephesians, causing them to adopt a shoot first and ask questions later mentality. But that's not the way of the Savior. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So, the love that the church of Ephesus had at first had waxed and it had waned. And despite all their positives, the problem was enough for Jesus to call them out and to call them to repentance. And if you're tempted to say, well, there's always something lacking in every church. I mean, I mean, you can't, no, there are no perfect churches. That might be true. But please note that later in Revelation, at this point in time, Jesus had nothing negative or sinful to say to the church at Smyrna nor the church at Philadelphia. So at this time, he wasn't picking on the Ephesians. This was a major issue that he felt needed to be pointed out. So brothers and sisters, this lovelessness was a serious issue, and that's why the Lord addressed it. It was serious for the Ephesians back then, and it may be serious for us here at Levittown right now. Now, before you start squirming, I highly doubt every member of the Ephesian church left their first love. Not every single person. And that's certainly not true of Gateway either. But in a church gathering this large, there are bound to be people within the sound of my voice that have failed to love as they ought to or as they used to at first. So in wrapping up this important point, the problem, whether view one is correct, I mean, whether you have failed to love and honor Jesus as you did at first, or whether view two is correct, and years in his service has made you grow cynical toward your brothers and sisters in this church, and you've abandoned the love you shared with them at the beginning, or maybe it's somewhere in between, I can biblically say that you have failed to love God by failing to love your brother. As it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So that's the problem. In Ephesus, we've looked at the positive. We explored the possibilities of the problem. (laughs) And now our point is the prescription. Point number three, the prescription. Verse 5a. You'll see in your Bibles, verse 5a says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So here in verse 5, the Lord gives the Ephesians the prescription for their problem. He tells them what they need to do. Therefore, this point, point number three, will serve as our points of application this morning. Usually our app points come at the end, but since they're here in the text, we're going to consider them now. But please don't get excited. We're nowhere near done, okay? But this is the Well, we're close to near done. The best thing about these points of application is that they come directly from Jesus. Uh, I didn't make them up. I may have came up with catchy ways to remember them, but he came up with them. Okay, so in our point number three, this prescription itself contains three points of application. The first point is remember. The second point is repent. And the third point is rewind. Okay, remember how far you have fallen. Repent, turn around, and rewind. Go back and do what you used to do. Let's look at number one, remember. Now, there is biblical precedent for remembering our past, both positive memories and negative memories, if it serves to edify and makes us endure to the end. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, when the Lord's giving the reason why the Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, he says this, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now, this is a positive remembrance. He's saying, remember you were helpless, you were a slave, and remember that I, your Lord, freed you. Remember that. Then later in Deuteronomy, in chapter 9, the Lord has to remember a negative memory. This time, he calls them to remember their own past sin. Look at what it says in verses six, and 6 to 7. He says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this land, Canaan, to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember, Do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Here he says, I'm not delivering you or giving you the promised land because you're deserving of it. No, he says, remember how evil you were and how gracious and mighty I am. In fact, we didn't read it today, but in the preceding verses, he tells them that the reason why the people that are there now are getting evicted is how evil they were. It's not because you're so good, it's because they're so evil. And then continuing to the end of the chapter, he keeps bringing up over and over again Israel's stubbornness and their disobedience. In other words, he's saying, Remember what I, the Lord, have done, am doing, and will do for you, even though you do not deserve any of it. Israel, remember. Remember. And for a quick New Testament example of remembering our past, the Apostle Paul recalls his past life as a pharisaical, Jesus-hating, Christian-persecuting Jewish henchman in Philippians chapter 3 as well as in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10 where he states, Though I formerly was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of Christ, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And we don't have time to read it this morning, but on your own time, check out 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-one 21 to 33. Well, Paul goes on an absolute tirade, partly sarcastic, okay? But in it, he recounts his former life as a persecutor, plus his battle scars for Christ. Yes, he does boast, but he's boasting in his weakness. So his readers see the Lord's strength. And in both of these cases, he's remembering his past, both the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he's using this memory to edify his readers. Okay, back to Ephesus now. Application point one, remember. In the Ephesian church, remember, therefore, where you have fallen from. Recall the time in the past where your love burned bright and hot for your Lord and was manifested through your practical love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, which is his holy bride. If they or you, Levittown, are convicted about going through the motions or performing perfunctory religious exercises, then remember. Remember a time when you served God from the heart and in full sincerity, not putting on a show for others to see, but performing out of a disposition of thankfulness, of gratitude, and love without grumbling, Mr. Neglia. Without grumbling. Remember. And if they or you are convicted of being overly critical or judgmental of fellow believers in this church, and if you've ceased serving them out of brotherly love, then remember. Remember a time when love for Christ overflowed with love for your brothers and sisters. And this love for Christ and his church was evidenced by the good works and charitable acts performed for them. Remember. Remember. Remember when your heart burned for Jesus and you couldn't pray enough and you couldn't sing enough and you couldn't read enough and you couldn't share the gospel enough. Remember what it felt like and remember how you responded with such urgency. Remember. Remember also how you jumped at the opportunity to feed your needy fellow church member. Bring them a meal or help your brothers and sisters with their move or give them a ride to the doctor's office or shoot them an encouraging text or God forbid you actually made a phone call. To them. Remember, 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 therefore, from where you have fallen, Ephesus and Levittown. Remember. Application point number two repent. Turn around. Stop doing this and start doing that. As Gideon said this morning, get rid of this and replace it with that. This will be a quick point of application because repentance always means the same thing. okay? You it, it requires a change of direction. you were going in one direction, you turn around and go in the other direction. That's what repentance means. It's a change of heart, it's a change of mind that turns into a change of action. You see, a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit has ears to hear because we know the sheep always hear the Good Shepherd's voice, John 10. We hear Jesus' critique loud and clear. If we're guilty of his criticism, if... If we're guilty of his criticism, we're convicted in our spirit. We understand and our hearts are changed. We must change our minds and we must decide to act upon the conviction. In Revelation chapter 2's case, they need to stop being unloving and all that that entails and start being loving and all that that entails. And the same is true for us this morning. Because as we know, true repentance, a change of heart and mind, always leads to a change of action, always to a change of action. So, number two, repent, turn around. And now we come to application point number three, rewind. We must do the works we did at first. Rewind, go back, repeat, redo the first works. So, again, if we're convicted by the Holy Spirit that we're serving Christ out of a sense of religious duty or out of a spiritual habit, doing whatever we do, reading, singing, praying, etc., because that's just what Christians do and I've always done it and I don't want people to see me not doing it or else if they do, they'll think less of me. You get the point. If that's you, then first continue doing those things because those are good things. Don't just say, well, I don't feel it, so I'm just not going to do it. No, you need to continue doing it. Okay? But your motive must change, okay? The desire must be to please your Savior by singing praises to your Savior. Why? Because you love your Savior. The works may be the same, they might look the same, but the motive behind them must change back to what they were at the beginning. How do you change your motive? Prayer, sincere prayer, private prayer, not flowery language, just crying out to God is the key to making any change we need to make because in our own strength, we can change nothing. We are powerless to change anything about us at all, especially our heart and especially the motive for which we do things. And if our problem was uh, view number two, and our problem is that we're too concerned fighting error in the church or attacks from outside the church, there are plenty of them today, if we're laser focused on these only fronts while being blind to the needs of the folks within, if we're not loving our brothers and sisters the way we used to, then as bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, answer your phone when it rings. Respond to that email. Don't reply all, but respond to that email. Agree to help in any way you are able to. And if you're convicted about being uh, hypercritical about each other, remove the log that is in your own eye. It's undoubtedly stuck in there before you say one word to your brother about the speck that's in his. And as we read earlier in Hebrews 6, 9, be persuaded of better things for each other. Or as Paul writes in First Corinthians thirteen five, love keeps no records of wrong. And Peter counsels in 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. So back to Ephesus. In Ephesus 1, 15, and 16, Paul wrote this to the church. He wrote, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You see, they needed to rewind to that time, and so do we, Gateway Church. Remember, repent, rewind. We've already examined the application points. We've examined the big sections, the positive, the problem, and the prescription. And now we arrive at a warning. At a warning. The warning is to the church that fails to fill the prescription. And that's point number four, the peril. And this point will be quick as well. In your Bibles, look at Revelation 2, 5b, where the Lord says, If not, if you do not, repent. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you do repent. So if a church does not remember, repeat, and rewind, then Jesus Christ will bring an end to that local church. He will do it. And that is what removing the lampstand symbolizes. As for Ephesus, there's there's debate on this in my studies, but it seems as though in my research that that generation that he was writing to did in fact repent, because in the second century, there's a letter uh, by Ignatius of Antioch, it's not, it's not inspired scripture, but it is a letter, it's an ancient letter, where he encourages them, it's like a letter of Paul to them, so they're obviously there almost 100 years later, so there is a, uh, a continuance of that church, so I'd like to think that that body repented, In the 5th century, there are some church councils there, but when we get into the Middle Ages, it gets a little muddy with what they believed. But today, there's no doubt that there is no gospel witness at that address in Ephesus. So Gateway Church, today, here, let us learn from that example. Let us heed the Lord's warning. Let us pray that the Lord would continue to allow Gateway to be a faithful gospel witness at this Levittown address. Amen? So, in the first six verses of Revelation 2, we've seen the positive, we've seen the problem, we've seen the prescription, and we've seen the peril. And now we arrive at verse number seven and we encounter the promise. The promise. Revelation 2.7, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, before we examine this final point, let me be clear. The last point, the peril, the warning about God removing the church's lampstand is not, is repeat, is not a warning about an individual losing their salvation and going to hell. That's not what the warning is about at all. Because in John 6:39, Jesus is clear that of all that he's been given by the Father, he will lose none and he shall raise him up on the last day. So that is an impossibility. The warning here is about God closing down a local body of believers, removing its gospel witness, not condemning condemning its members to the lake of fire. That's not what the peril was about. But in verse 7, the promise, I believe, is an individual promise to the individual believer, to you. To those who conquer or to those who overcome, which every believer will do, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that he who is believing, active, daily, active, belief, daily, hour by hour, will ha- never perish but have eternal life. Mark 13, 13, those abiding in Jesus, active, daily, abiding, remaining to the end, will be saved. Revelation 2, 7's promise is this. He's saying, Christian, I know carrying my cross, carrying Jesus' cross is difficult. difficult. Being hated by all for Jesus' sake is tough. And remaining loving in return is even tougher. But be encouraged. Be encouraged. Stay the course. Continue fighting the good fight. Aim to finish the race. Don't give up because this promise awaits you when your toil on earth is done. You will be granted to eat from the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. You will be. We need this encouragement. We need it. It even says that in, in Hebrews 12 that, that, that for the joy set before him, the Lord endured the cross. This, he, he was looking forward to the reward. We need this encouragement. The promise that there is something after this. The Lord Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verses 2 and 3, he says, In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So, this promise is for all true believers in Jesus Christ who will overcome because he has overcome. But please note today that this promise is for believers only. That beautiful promise that Jesus made to his disciples in John 14, 2 to 3, continues in John 14, verses 4 to 6, where he continues. He says, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, one of his disciples, said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Verse 6, then Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there you have it. There's no way to be reconciled to God. There's no way to go to the Father but by Jesus Christ, by his perfect life giving for your sinful one, by his death on the cross paying for your sins, by his rising again and ascending into heaven to intercede for you. And for his coming again to take you to be where he is. Now, with each of my sermons, all the technical stuff we discuss, all the talk about rewinding, all the talk about remembering, and this lampstand and that star will do you no good if you're still in your sins. No good. You can't first love your way into heaven. Okay? You need to be saved first. So my, my exhortation to you this morning is just run to Jesus. And what does that mean, run? You're going to run? What you're going to do is you're going to bow. You're going to confess your sins to him. You're going to acknowledge that even if you love someone to the best of your ability, it's not enough to satisfy a holy God. It's nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. Acknowledge that you can't save yourself. Acknowledge that you are powerless to save you. And just like the Lord delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, he will deliver you from your sins. So put your faith and trust in him today. Believing that his death on the cross paid for every sin that you've ever committed or will commit, repent of your sins, stop worshiping false idols, turn to him and believe daily, actively believing in him. And then you'll never perish but have eternal life. Then stay with your first love. But to believers, to members of Gateway Church, Jesus promises this restored Eden to all who conquer. So conquer, so overcome. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he expands on the imagery of the restored Eden. He says this, Then the angel showed me, John, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Brothers and sisters, I began this message with an embarrassing story about me getting lost on the way to church. And I was angry because I have to drive so far, blah, 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 poor baby. But I was wrong in being angry, that is obvious. I was sinful in my grumbling and complaining. I was not content. But one thing my sin presented, it presented the question, why do I drive so far? Why, Why would anybody come so far? Well, number one, as I said before, is doctrine is orthodoxy. We hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Whatever they are, we hate them. But that's not enough. Orthodoxy must lead to orthopraxy. Right doctrine, right teaching, right belief, right behavior. So practice. Gateway seeks to love Christ by loving one another. I've seen it. You've seen it. I've been on the receiving end of it so much. These two ingredients consistently followed and prayerfully lived out are evidences of God's grace upon this church and upon its members. So may we continue forward together seeking to work, seeking to toil, seeking to endure patiently, endure, and hanging on the whole way to our first love. And when necessary, remembering, repenting, and rewinding. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for providing it to us, a people living thousands of years after it was written. But we thank you for how it cuts right to our heart. We thank you for how it speaks to us this day. We thank you, dear God, for for providing your word, making it available to us, and giving us ears to hear and eyes to see what it is saying. Right now, I pray that you would give us the ability to understand and that you would grace us to be able to follow what your word says. If any of us are indeed guilty of leaving our first love or abandoning the love that we had for each other at first, please grant us the gift of repentance. Have us remember the way it used to be and how we responded to the way it was. Have us repent to turn away from our sinful, selfish behavior and turn toward you and in love for the uh, brethren here at the church. And I pray we will rewind and act the way we did at first. If any of us are not convicted and not guilty of it, I pray that you would give us grace to bear with those that are. And I pray all these things for your name and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.